um, our next speaker. Some of you know Brady Goodwin Jr. already. Um, Brady is uh, a man of God, first of all. Love this brother. Um, also known as the fanatic. Amen. A two-time Grammy-nominated artist for his work as a member of the pioneering Christian rap group, The Cross Movement. Brady has also written five books uh, over the last several years, between 2009 and 2016. He was a busy dude writing those books. I've read a couple of them. They are good reading, nonfiction and fiction books. Um, he's a designer of curriculum uh, in hip-hop and inner-city ethics. Uh, Brady teaches at Cairn University, Community College of Philadelphia, and Simon Gratz High School. He also teaches courses in theology at Lancaster Bible College uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, Brady has a Master of Arts uh, in Religion from Westminster Theological Seminary, and he is a good brother in the Lord. Let's receive our brother, Brady Goodwin, Jr., the fanatic. Uh, good evening. Let me just say, as a uh, recovering rapper, this chord is not long enough nearly <laughs> for what I want to do right now. Um, yeah, I feel like, you know, chained right now. Um, so, I was in New Life about 20 plus years ago um, for the very first time. I was only here one time before. And I was terrified when I was here 20-plus uh, years ago. Um, it had nothing to do with race at that time. Maybe it did. So I had just started rapping. I was 17 years old, rapping for the Lord. And uh, a friend of mine in high school, he just started a Christian rock band. And the youth leader here at New Life uh, had him as his little rock band uh, come and do a, like a mini concert. And so me and my Christian rap friend, Juan, uh, we came, and we were like the only two black faces in the crowd at the mini uh, Christian rock concert. And at some point during the night, they turned the lights off and had a, ma a mosh pit. And so it's two black kids in the middle of a, a mosh pit in the dark at New Life. And uh, so I've, I've been here before. <laughs> um, if you guys start moshing up in here, you know. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> so when I, I was coming to uh, speak tonight, I thought to myself, there's two kinds of people that normally show up at events like this. Uh, one is normally white folks who already know what they should know about people of color in themselves. Like they just, it's like preaching to the choir, to choir, right? Uh, the other group is typically people of color who come to see like, hmm, what are these people on stage going to say white people need to know about me? <laughs> and if they find out uh, what they need to know about me, what are they going to do? So if you're not in either of those two categories, kudos to you for being here. If you felt like I, I really do want to know what I need to know. Um, I hesitate a little bit to speak for what people should know about people of color because you've heard people say this, but it's true. Whether you're black or Latino or even if you're white, whatever, you, you're not a part of a monolithic group. People don't all think the same, want the same, act the same, do the same. So I hesitate to speak for a group. I remember when I was in uh, college, I went to a predominantly white college 
of 700 students. And uh, of those 700, you can count the African-Americans on two hands and have fingers left over. And so here I was, one of seven black students in an all-white college, and we're in a sociology class, and we're talking about uh, civil unrest and uh, social disruption and protest. And one of the white students in the class, a young lady, she said to the professor, um, why is it that when uh, African-Americans, when they riot, they destroy their own neighborhoods? And I sat up at that moment like, okay, yeah, I want to hear the, the, the sociologist professor, the, what's he going to say? And so uh, he turned to me and said, I don't know, Brady, why is that? So you can imagine, I slunk back down in my seat like, oh my gosh, and all the eyes are on me. You want me to speak for an entire group of people? I can't tell you why. But I was a little shocked that as the sociology professor, you can't tell me why. And this was at a Bible college. Um, I could respect it if what was going on was he didn't want to speak for a group that he was not a part of. But what I was a little troubled by is the idea that perhaps you had never stepped outside of the world that you live in to even imagine why that might be. That African-Americans, if they riot, destroy their own neighborhoods. Yeah, it makes no sense on the surface, but perhaps, I mean, think about it. Can you imagine what would happen if African-Americans went to another neighborhood to wild out? to Center City, to wild out. Uh, even that is a bit of white privilege because if you're white, you can do it in any neighborhood. Historically, whites have even gone to black neighborhoods to riot. But be black and try to go outside your neighborhood. Those who say there's no such thing as white privilege, you have the privilege, privilege to riot wherever you want. Blacks could not. Uh, it could also be, I mean, think about the, the experience of African-Americans in this country. Um, you're oppressed. You are rejected. You are, uh, in all types of ways, being uh, brutalized or terrorized. You feel like your complaints are going unheard. And so if no one is hearing your complaint and no one is seeing your pain, at some point you want your outsides to match what your insides are feeling. So I'm going to destroy something because you need to see what I'm going through. It's the same reason why sometimes people who are stranded start smoke signals to send up a flame like, yo, we need help here. And so I'm just thinking, as a professor of sociology, you've studied civil unrest around the world. You can't imagine why that might be. And so I just say that to say I'm not really going to try to speak for all African Americans, because I don't think I can. But I think it's worth doing the exercise to figure out why might a group of people be doing what they're doing if I put myself in their shoes. What I would like to try to do with the few minutes that I have left is to maybe help you with the other part of tonight's theme. Uh, and the rest of the, the theme is, what should white Christians know about themselves? And so I'm going to try to maybe do what my professor wouldn't do, which is speak to, and maybe even for, a group that I'm not, not a part of. Um, I'm going to try to hold up a mirror to maybe for those who say, man, as a white Christian, what is something that I might want to, maybe need to know about me as if, if I'm going to try to reach out to the world around me? And that, I think, is... It's very important to know how you're being perceived. They often say you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And me and my analytical mind try to like find flaws in that, and I, to this day I can't. Like you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. You can try to fix the first impression if it was not a good one, but you can't make a new first impression. You can maybe recover from it. 
But I think it'd be helpful to know how are Christians being perceived, especially white Christians, being perceived when they attempt to reach out. Even as an African-American, I remember being a rapper in the 1990s, it was taboo to be a black Christian in hip-hop culture. Hip-hop was not a fan of Jesus Christ or Christians. Why? When I come in as a black Christian, they're not seeing me. They're seeing the white Christians who already gave them their first impression of what a Christian is. What is that first impression? The only way I can really make this plain is by way of analogy. You may have heard this analogy before, but I'm going to try to take it a little bit further. Um, you, you may have heard people talk about the game of pool, not swimming in a pool, but on a table, bill, billiards, hitting the balls around, right? Uh, people have humorously said, man, the game of pool almost resembles modern world history. You say, how? They say, because look at it, you have a white ball, and the intention is to knock all the colored balls off the table. You're like, hmm. And then the last objective is to take that last, the black ball, the eight ball, and get that one out the way. And you do that, you win. I said, it's kind of humorous, but when you think about it, it actually is a little more unnerving than that. I don't know if you guys know about the history of the game of pool. It's not a racist game, but it's, it's just it's comical, but then a little scary. So the green felt on the table is supposed to represent grass because the game comes from croquet, where you play it outside. So they want to make that game an indoor game, so they have green felt on the table represent grass. And then the borders around the table, uh, they call those banks because it looks like a riverbank. So already you have the idea of land or the earth. Then you have these balls on the table and the goal is to try to put these balls in, you know, where they got to go. Originally, the game of pool was not played with a cue stick. It was played with a weapon. It was played with a mace. If you know what a mace looks like, it's like a stick and at the end is a huge iron ball with spikes on it though. And so they're taking this mace and trying to hit this, to get these balls in the hole. So you have a game on a table that looks like land and earth. And the idea is to take this weapon and get all these colored balls out the way <laughs> so that the last one standing is this white ball. And I said, can that be compared to modern history? If you think about it, many people around the world would say that's what happened in modern history. Here's where that ties into us tonight. The way Christians and Christianity, and then especially white Christians, are perceived is it's not just we're going to get these other balls out the way. And it's not just that we're using a weapon to do it. Christianity is seen as that mace. Christianity is often seen as that weapon that's used to get others out of the way. So Kenyan leader uh, Jomo Kenyatta talked about how Christianity was received in Kenya. He said, the white missionaries came, and they asked us to pray. They said, before we prayed, the missionaries had the Bible, we had the land. They said, let us pray. Close our eyes. They said, when we opened our eyes, we had the Bibles, and they had the land. Even in America, and I'll be closing on this point, think about what happened in the last election. I don't know if you realize, but in the last couple years, there's been like an exodus of black Christians claiming I'm, I'm divorcing myself from white evangelicalism. Because as of the last election, what happened is people said, man, is white evangelicalism part of the Christian religion or is it just a voting block that brings whites together to vote a certain way, not for theological reasons, but for social and political reasons and economic reasons. 
such that white Christians would lump themselves in with whoever so long as they're going to get their social, economic, and political way. Even non-Christian whites have looked at white evangelicals and said, you guys are hypocrites. You talk all this moral stuff, and then you're siding with him? Clearly, all this time, you weren't really about what you said. You were about something else. As a black Christian, I have to recognize that when I come in and I say, I teach in secular environments. And when I say I'm a Christian, they look at me like, are you crazy? They're not for you. I said, man, what was the first impression that you saw of a Christian? What's the world view of a Christian? I said I was closing on that point. I'll close on this point. So we live in a world where right now gentrification is what's happening in the inner city all over the country. Where whites who have left the city are now coming back into the city. I'm associated with three Christian schools, a Bible college, a university, and a seminary. All three of them began in the inner city. And when white flight took place during the 70s, all three of them left the inner city. Now that we are reversing that trajectory and people are coming back into the inner city, you got to think about what is the Christian's mission going to be? Now it's cool to be in the inner city. I'll go back to the game of pool. You know what it means to scratch in pool. Scratch is when the white ball goes where the other balls are going because that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> the color balls leave the table, not the white ball. You make the white ball leave the table, it's a scratch. You lose your turn. At the end of the game, it's the eight ball left. The black ball is left. You lose the game if the white ball goes where that black ball is supposed to go. I will offer this to the Christian, black or white. If your Christianity looks like you do not want to and you cannot go where the other colored balls are going. That is not Christianity. Jesus came to where we are. He incarnated. He did not look at our fate and say, nah, let them have that. I can't have their fate. He took our fate. What Christianity, black or white, ought to look like is, how do I incarnate? How do I embrace their situation? Not for the sake of just the brotherhood of humanity, but this is what our God has done for us. So I offer that before we go to what we're going to go to in a few minutes, to think about a Christianity that looks like I'm not afraid to go where the colored balls are going.